Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Today's show is pre-recorded. Thirty-seven journalists have been murdered in Latin America this year through November, according to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. This is the highest number since 1998. And intimidation and forced exile have surged this year as well. Just this past Thursday, one of Mexico's most prominent TV news anchors, Ciro Gomez Leva, was shot at while driving near his home in Mexico City. This occurred just a day after the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, criticized the journalist during his daily news conference. In Central America, 20 Nicaraguan media outlets and more than 150 Nicaraguan journalists work in exile after being shut down or threatened by the authoritarian government of Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo. Today, we're going to discuss the causes and consequences of this wave of violence and intimidation of journalists in Latin America. And we'll explore ways public rhetoric about the media impacts press freedom and democracy in that region, the United States, and beyond. Here to shed light on these critical issues is investigative journalist Catherine Corcoran, former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America. In this role, she led an award-winning team that broke major stories about cartel and state violence and abuse of authority in the region. She's the author of the new nonfiction book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press, which investigates the murder of Regina Martinez, a legendary journalist in the Mexican state of Veracruz. National Public Radio calls the book Epic, a deeply reported and riveting account. I'm looking forward to talking about your book with you today, Catherine. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'd like to start, Catherine, by having you read us the first six paragraphs of the book's preface to set the stage for the story that unfolds and where you were when you found out about it. On my first day as Associated Press Bureau Chief in Mexico City, I was awakened by a 6 a.m. phone call. The news agency had received a threat from a drug cartel. It came via cell phone text to one of our journalists, ordering us to publish a story about then-President Felipe Calderón protecting Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the world's most notorious drug lord, now serving a life sentence in the United States or we would receive a, quote, special visit. The message listed the address of the Bureau. It was signed by the Setas, El Chapo's rivals. One of my responsibilities as Bureau Chief was the safety of more than a dozen correspondents and 20 freelancers around the region. At that moment, I was faced with protecting the entire Mexico team of the US-based international news agency. The Setas knew where we worked. In a flurry of messages among AP offices in New York, Buenos Aires, and London, I told my editors that we needed to take extreme actions to the point of removing from the country anyone in danger. I wrote this at 6.47 a.m. These guys don't fool around. Welcome to your first assignment as bureau chief, the Latin America editor told me. I can't say I was surprised. In fact, I knew immediately what to do. 
I had already worked in Mexico for two and a half years, and I knew the press there was under siege. It was the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist outside of a war zone. The forces that attacked the Mexican press usually left the international media alone, but this was an epidemic, and it was only a matter of time before it reached us. By the time we received the threat, 51 journalists had been killed in Mexico since the Committee to Protect Journalists started keeping track in 1992. About half those killings had occurred since I arrived in Mexico in 2008. 10 were killed in 2010 alone, the year I got the early morning phone call. The numbers have only grown since then. Thank you, Catherine. So this is the context for you learning about the murder of journalist Regina Martinez in April 2012, and subsequently your investigation that sparked this book in the mouth of the wolf. Tell us about Regina Martinez and why her killing was so significant. She was a reporter before her time. When she started her career in the mid to late 1980s, the press in Mexico was still pretty much controlled by the government. Uh, Mexico had been ruled for decades by a one-party authoritarian system, and that included um, really keeping the press in line and controlling the press. But from the day that she started, she just wasn't one of those kinds of reporters. She really wanted to find out the truth and, and write the truth. And so she would not accept the official story that the other media printed. She went out and asked questions and interviewed people and asked for documents and, um, and just practiced a, a kind of an unusual, what we would consider good journalism in the United States, but very unusual for that time and especially in the region, um, in a state away from Mexico City, the big city. And um, so you can imagine she was writing stories and giving voice to communities that had never appeared in the press before. And she found incredible stories about um, issues of um, social justice and abuse of power. And she wrote those kinds of stories throughout her career. And so from the very beginning, she was what they called an uncomfortable journalist. The, the, the powers that be really did not like her. And she suffered harassment throughout her career. But in, in the year or so leading up to her death, the situation in general had just become so much more dangerous that her style of journalism really put a target on her back. And what happened then, uh, exactly, as far as we know, what um, was discovered about her murder? And that, of course, will lead us into your investigation. But what are the, the basic facts of the situation? Well, she was found uh, beaten and strangled to death in her bathroom uh, late on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, she hadn't been seen alive since the night before. And she was a person, because of the style of journalist, journalism that she did, and because she was under a lot of attack and surveillance, she was a very hermetic person. She kept only a very close circle of trusted friends. On the weekends, she really didn't go out at all. When she wasn't working, she was at home writing stories, doing her errands, et cetera, et cetera. But she, was, she, was, uh, she very much kept to herself. So, that's why it took a while for anyone to find her body because no one, they were used to not really seeing her out and about. And so 
But there was what was strange to her neighbors was that her gate had been left open and her front door had been left ajar. And that was highly unusual for her because she was very concerned about security. And but there was no sign of her. And so after, you know, a few hours, well, many hours, because, again, she was very private. People didn't want to bother her. Um, uh, the neighbors just decided that it just looked really strange. And so they called the police. And uh, that's when the police found her body. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with journalist Catherine Corcoran about her new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. So you were just telling us about Regina Martinez and her murder. How did the government and the media react to her murder, Catherine? There was an enormous reaction immediately on the part of the media because she was known throughout the country as a reporter who spoke truth to power. And everyone assumed immediately that she had been murdered for her work. And, um, and it was a very strong message to all journalists in Mexico because up to that point, there had been quite a few journalists murdered, but they tended to be very local um, local journalists, and also they tended to be crime reporters who were covering the, the cartel wars. And so the fact that um, she was murdered, a, a woman who didn't cover, um, she did not cover narcos or drug cartels. A lot of people reported that she did, but she didn't. Her, her theme was public corruption and, and social justice. And so the fact that she was murdered and also the fact that she wrote for a national magazine, and, and at that time, the national press was considered to have somewhat of a protection because it would create too much noise if someone attacked a national correspondent, much like the international press. Um, the, the threat that I referred to was highly unusual for something to come to the international press because it, it created noise. And what they're trying to do with these attacks is silence people. So it was really unusual that they hit her for those two reasons, particularly because she wrote for a national magazine. And every reporter, particularly the national reporters, read that incident as, well, a line has been crossed. This invisible line has been crossed, and they can and will go after all of us. And so it was a huge, um, it had a huge impact nationally. And even, I would say, within a half a day, it was an international story. And um, there were comments, I think there were protests in France. There, were, there was reaction around the world because it's, it seemed so clear that, that there was, this was this um, aggressive um, um, reporter of high standards speaking truth to power, and she had been wiped out, basically. So how did Rahina's story reach you? Um, and what sparked your decision to investigate the murder yourself and ultimately write this um, kind of investigative story, this book, about what happened to her? Well, as you saw from the opening of the book, we were living in this time, um, this whole epidemic of journalist killings. Um, we were journalists in Mexico, and we were living it on two different levels. First of all, we were covering the story. But second of all, even though these 
these killings tended not to hit international journalists. The fact that they had just exploded really changed the way we could cover Mexico as international correspondents. Before this, Mexico had been a pretty quiet country and pretty easy to get around in. And so when I became bureau chief, we had to create security protocols. We had to um, have GPS monitoring. Uh, journalists no longer could go out by themselves. They had to go out in teams. We had to evaluate the security of every region where we wanted to send correspondence. And so we were living it as, you know, the, in the manner we had to work but also it was the story. And so being completely steeped in, in this um, dramatic change of what it meant to be a journalist in Mexico, um, I read about Regina's killing on the AP wire. It was a weekend and um, I was actually leaving the country to go to a conference, um, but I didn't normally work weekends. I would just read the wire like everybody else did. And, and I saw the very short article about her and it just stopped me immediately because I had spoken to her on the phone about six months earlier. I had um, tried to hire her to do a story for the Associated Press. She had been a freelancer for the Associated Press in the past, but um, she had um, gone to work for Proceso. She had another job, but we were really in need of a person in Veracruz where she worked to get something for us quickly. So I called her up and she said, oh, I'd love to, but I'm really busy. Why don't you call me back in a couple hours? I'll see if I can make some time. And then I called her back and she said, no, no, I'm just really too busy. And that was the extent of it. But until I saw that she had been murdered and, and I remember saying to myself and maybe even saying out loud, her? because she wasn't, she didn't fit the profile of the targets up to that point. But also I had tried to hire her. So I knew that she was a reporter of high standards and, and great credibility because this phenomenon did exist of, of corruption within the press corps and the press still being paid off like they had been in the old days. And so, so for the Associated Press, we really vetted the Mexican reporters that we hired to work for us. And so I knew she was good. And, and I had tried to hire her. And then to see that she had been murdered, it just was a shock to me as well. So you um, didn't bring this story to uh, editors or think about it as a book initially, right? You. Um, continued your work there with the AP. What kept you pursuing this story? And then when you did bring it to editors, how did they react to your idea? Well, I had thought this story really needs a bigger treatment. This is different. And But I was leaving town and I was going to a conference. And so I thought, well, you know, the, the kind of, when, we, when there's a breaking news story, often we do take some time to come back on it with a bigger a bigger treatment and so I thought well I'll look into it when I get back and while I was gone there were three more journalists murdered that week so there were four journal I mean I still think this is just incredible to this day and anywhere in the world there were four journalists murdered in one week in the same state in the state of Veracruz and because of that it was so unprecedented that's what took over in terms of the Associated Press and an international story that took over the story because 
where and when in the world do you ever see four reporters killed in one week in the same, and, and even more so in the same state? And so, um, so that became the story with not so much focus on Regina. And so I kept it in the back of my mind where I said, I still want to come back on this somehow. It, 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 the story just lived in the back of my head. But we were, we were you know, reporting in an extremely um, news, newsy and, and busy region. And I didn't really have, have time. I, I thought about it. But then um, one day I was introduced to a journalist who was looking for work in Veracruz, where she worked. And, and we needed a correspondent there. And so I, I said, hey, come in. Let's talk about you working for us. And we had a conversation and we decided that, you know, he would come work for us, see how, see how it worked for him, see how it worked for us. And then at the end of the conversation, because the story had been living in my head, I said, do you know anything about this Regina Martinez case? And he said, she was a really good friend of mine. And so that was by pure coincidence, I had her, one of her closest friends sitting in my office. And I said, well, what, what happened there? Because as you see in the book, there was a huge cover-up and all kinds of stories and rumors. And I said, well, what happened there? And, and he said, uh, it was the government. And that, again, just startled me because the conventional wisdom at the time was that narcos were killing journalists and nothing about the government. And so that, of course, intrigued me. And I said, how do you know? And he said, we don't. We can't prove it. We just know. That's what he said. And so, of course, as a reporter, I thought, you know, there's, there's a mystery there. There's something to look into. Why do they think the government did it? What really happened? And, um, and so, again, the story grew in my head, but I, again, didn't have time to, to really give it a treatment for the AP. So I just said to myself, when, I, when I'm done with this job, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to see if there's a book there, because it was such a intriguing story to me and i now had a contact who was inside her in her circle purely by coincidence if you're just joining us uh, i'm talking today with journalist katherine corcoran about her new book in the mouth of the wolf a murder a cover-up and the true cost of silencing the press so katherine you've just been telling us about how you discovered the murder of regina martinez and um, you're about to get into this process of investigation now. You've decided to pursue this larger story. Um, how did you go about trying to figure out what happened exactly um, with so many competing narratives about who killed Regina Martinez? Well, I, I had two obvious starting points. One was the correspondent who worked for us at the Associated Press. Uh, he He's... Uh, a large character in the book. His name is Rodrigo Sobranes. And so I started talking with Rodrigo and telling him what I wanted to do. And I, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, well, let me talk to my friends and see if they'll help you. Because they were all part of Regina's very tight circle. And they had not spoken to anybody. They avoided all interviews. Um, all but one of them had to leave Veracruz after her killing for their own safety. And uh, they just didn't talk to people. It wasn't safe for them to talk, but also they didn't want to feed all this, this kind of rumor mill and this, 
um, this cover-up that was going on, they really thought, well, if we, if we give interviews, they're just going to use what we say against her. And because we know this story that the government is creating is not true, and we don't want to participate in any way. So they hadn't spoken to anyone, and they, and they agreed to talk to me. And, and the other obvious place to go was Proceso. That was the magazine that she worked for. And the journalist who covered her killing for Proceso, his name is Jorge Carrasco. And so between those two people, those were my starting points to start to um, dig in and kind of unravel what had happened. And then from there on, you meet um, several of her mentees, right? Young journalists that she has trained. And this, to me, was one of the uh, most remarkable parts of the book, is hearing these firsthand stories that you gathered of these young journalists who um, she so carefully mentored and, and for some of them, in fact, became sort of a mother figure um, tell us more about these mentees and then the, the obstacles they faced after their um, mentor, Regina Martinez, was killed. Well, it started with Rodrigo. He was one of these mentees. And he told me this fascinating story of how she would... Um, he and this inner circle all but one of them had worked under her at a local newspaper in Jalapa, which is the capital of Veracruz. And they had come in literally straight out of college for various reasons, but looking for writing jobs. And, um, and she would seek them out in the newsroom and corral them uh, and train them to be report the kind of reporter that she was, to ask questions, to not accept the official story, um, to have ethics, not to accept bribes. Um, and, and they were really enthralled with this because, again, it was so different from the system. And they were all idealistic. They all wanted to, you know, they wanted to change the world. They'd just come out of college. Um, and so they were really pleasantly surprised to be chosen by her to get this special training. And later on, it became apparent that because there was a lot of corruption in the press and including in her own newsroom, that she did this intentionally as a way to create her own band of trustworthy journalists. And it was almost like creating her own security system because she needed to, she needed to operate with people she could trust. And so she created those people. She always would make comments like before anybody else got to them, she wanted to get to them because she didn't want them to learn the bad habits. She wanted to teach them the good habits. And so this was the group, this was the inner circle that I had approached initially, initially through Rodrigo. By the time I knew them, they were more, um, they were older, kind of more mid-career, mid-30s. And, um, and the fact that they agreed to talk to me really helped me um, paint a picture of her, what she was really like outside of the myth and the martyrdom and all the things that happened um, after she died. And, and that's really why I wanted, I wanted to, you know, to talk to them and have their confidence because I wanted to write about the real person and not the myth that she had become in her death. And so that was really an, an important um, 
find and important. As I said, it was a coincidence that I even met Rodrigo, but he and I had worked together at the, at the Associated Press and we really worked well as colleagues. I knew he was a really good reporter. We liked each other. Um, and so that's, so we created a relationship before I even tried to tell the story of Regina. And so I wanted to write about the real person and they wanted, they wanted somebody to write about the real person. They were very cynical and angry about all the, all the stuff that had come out and all the, all the people who said she was a great friend who didn't even know her and, and everybody talking about her courage. And, 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 and they would just watch this from the sidelines thinking, you don't even know her. And so I think they, as I mentioned, they all had to leave. Um, Rodrigo left on his own. He went into self-exile because some people in his family were in high government positions and they recommended that he leave. They said, we don't know if you're safe there. And then um, another correspondent, his, his um, newspaper, which is headquartered in Mexico City, pulled him out and said, you have to leave. And then, and so did another one whose, whose news agency was headquartered in Mexico City. They, they pulled them out of Veracruz. They said, it's just not safe to be there. If you are an independent, uh, real critical reporter. And um, so, so three of them left and they, they couldn't tell the story. They're reporters and they wanna tell stories, but they themselves couldn't tell the story because it was too dangerous, they weren't there. And they didn't want to get involved in all the commotion that happened afterwards. And so I think when I came along a few years later, they were happy to have someone who could tell the story. They wanted to help me tell the story because they couldn't. And I think if I had not had that group of people I don't know. I mean, I definitely couldn't have written the book I did. And I don't know if I could have written a book at all. You're listening to journalist Catherine Corcoran here on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and we're talking about Catherine Corcoran's new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. You paint such a a vivid, intimate picture of Regina Martinez, uh, the journalist who was murdered in 2012 in this book, Catherine. And I'm curious, uh, when you took this idea of writing a book about a, a deeply reported, intimate account of the intricacies of Mexican journalism to editors, in the United States, how they reacted to that idea and how your sense of the book evolved over the course of your reporting on it? Yes, it was a tough sell. And so this would have been in, when I started working on it, it was in 2015. And, or even before that, you know, I was sort of floating the idea around and I, I wasn't getting a lot of reaction to it um, because at that time, journalists, and, and I think this is kind of one of the reasons we're experiencing the difficulties we are now, is that journalists never want to be the story. And so if you're a newspaper editor and someone pitches you a story about a journalist, it, do, it seems kind of self-serving, or it seems, or at the time anyway, it's, it, 
it, it felt kind of self-serving and like, you know, we are not the story and people don't care about us or think about us. We're just the conduit, you know, we just, we, people read stories to know about the issue or the subjects or the people and not about us. And so in that sense, that was really the sensibility and that's changed and I can talk a little bit about that as well. But at the time that was the sensibility. It was, it, and even in covering all these murdered reporters, there was some of that sensibility, not only on our part, like, well, who really cares about journalists anyway, but on the part of, of the media of these reporters who were being killed, they, um, they retreated. They didn't, they didn't want to write about their own correspondence being killed. They, in, in some ways they did it, they didn't because they wanted, they thought if they kept silent, that would help their, their safety or help them, keep them from getting hit again. Or they would even kind of distance themselves from the person saying, well, we didn't assign that story, again, for security. And, um, and, they, and they didn't even want to talk to us as the international media. We wanted to interview them and the editors of these, of these news organizations that had been hit. We wanted to talk to them and they wouldn't talk to us. So there's this huge reticence inside the, the profession to talk about yourself because you're not the story. And um, so that was one issue. But the other issue is, um, and, and you would get this about any, in the United States, practically any foreign story, except if it's the Middle East or China or Ukraine right now, um, it's kind of like, well, that's Mexico. It's happening in Mexico. Why would I care? How does that affect me? And so um, initially that was a challenge because my interest in doing the story was, well, first of all, this is, a, this is a, a, a new, fragile democracy that's trying to grow as a democracy, and one of its main institutions is, is under serious attack. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to write about it. The other reason was, why, why was the most dangerous country in the world for journalists a democracy? That seemed so counterintuitive to me, like, why were they killing reporters in democracies? And if, if and I did a little more research and I realized that at the time, the other countries with the with high journalist numbers of journalist killings were also democracies because Brazil had a lot of journalist killings at the time. Uh, India has a lot of journalist killings, Phil, the Philippines. And I and so I thought, wow, this just doesn't sound right to me. And so there were, you know, when, as, as journalists work, we just have questions. We want to answer our questions. So my question was, my questions initially were, why is nothing being done about this in Mexico? Why is no one reacting? The numbers were so astonishing to me and everyone acted like it, it was normal or, or there was nothing that needed to be fixed. And second of all, why was this happen, happening in a democracy? And Mexico is very strategic and important to the United States. So what happens in Mexico impacts us directly in a lot of ways, even though Americans don't really know that and they don't really see it. But that's really a hard angle to sell. Well, we should care. Even if we don't care about Mexico, we should. And we should care that these journalists are being killed. And so my, my initial questions underlying the project and why I wanted to do the project were a hard sell for those reasons. 
And then something very curious happened in the United States, and it also happened in 2015, right after I started doing my um, the serious research. And that was that uh, then presidential candidate Donald Trump started attacking the press in the United States and started calling the press corrupt and the enemy of the people and said we reported fake news. And the narrative to me, again, was, was shocking because that was exactly the narrative they used in Mexico where all these journalists were being killed and everyone was being told not to pay attention to it because they were corrupt. And so the parallel there struck me in a big way, but also struck the people I was trying to um, sell the story to. Then they all of a sudden they saw the connection that, yeah, if this is, we're starting to hear the same things in the United States. And the story became more of a cautionary tale as in if, if you go down this road of completely discrediting and attacking the press where people don't know what to believe and people can't rely or, or, or don't trust the truth, this is what you get. And so, um, so the parallel to the United States then all of a sudden became very relevant in a way that obviously I had not anticipated when I started writing the book. So what do you see as some of the implications of those attacks on the press more broadly, the impacts they've had in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America? And um, do you see continuing parallels now in the U.S.? I do see continuing parallels. But to the first part of your question, it's, it's very... We're in a very troubled period for the press, I think all over the world, but particularly in Latin America and particularly in, in Mexico and Central America. Um, it's very difficult to be a reporter in Mexico. I, I think the people who choose to do it are extremely brave. Um, they, they, journalists in Mexico don't get paid a lot. Um, the press has changed dramatically since I started working on this and since I started working in Mexico, where it is more independent and more critical. And this is, this is anecdotal. I can't say it's a cause and effect, but two parallel things that are happening side by side is that journalists are becoming more independent and are investigating more, and the number of journalists being killed are go, is going up. And so it's considered to be very dangerous if you're, um, if you're investigating corruption, if you're investigating public officials. Um, a lot of the journalists are working in smaller media markets and they're in places where they grew up and they know everybody. And they know a lot. They know the bad guys and the good guys because they grew up with them, and, but their families are there and they're there. And so, they have a lot at stake to go after these people because they can be heard in a lot of ways, not just themselves, but someone could go after their families. Um, a lot of them go into exile into, in other parts of Mexico or in Mexico City, and that's very difficult too because when you have to go in exile, people might think, well, great, you're not gonna be killed then, you're protected, but it, it takes the journalist out of, out of the community they can't come to Mexico City and do the kind of stories and the kind of reporting they were doing for their local communities. So in effect, even going into exile is silencing the journalist. So it, it's very complicated here right now. 
The government hasn't responded in a way the impunity in these cases is still very high. I mean, on the contrary, the president of Mexico criticizes the press every single day and says that they're um, that they represent his opposition. If he's if 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 they are critical of him, as you would think in a democracy, you want the press to be critical of the elected leaders. Um, he, in a very Trumpian kind of way, casts them as enemies. So, like, if you write positive things about me, you're you're in in the camp. You're a good journalist. And if you write negative things, you're the enemy. And he has really set the press up that way that anyone who criticizes him, he calls them the conservatives and says that they're representing um, the the powers, the, the status quo and the oligarchs and, and the because he's a great change maker. And so they're, they're the enemy. And it makes it very it, even more difficult for reporters to do their jobs. The government doesn't really investigate these cases. They never have. And so if you kill a journalist in Mexico, you pretty much get away with it. And that's what makes it so dangerous right now. And so that's the, that's the difficulties that they face. And I see the profession coming together in ways it didn't before to really try to battle this and do what they can themselves since nobody else is doing anything. I mean, not the international community, not, not the justice system in Mexico. And so, um, so the journalists here are becoming more active and more creative in terms of how to, how to protect themselves and how to still get this work done. And as you mentioned about Nicaragua, the situation with the press right now across Central America is very disturbing, not just in, in Nicaragua where any independent reporter right now or, or media organization is operating in exile. They either had to leave or they were gonna be jailed. You see the same attacks in El Salvador against the critical press. There, the president there, Bukele, has gone heavy after El Faro, which is an independent online investigative media, and um, has accused them of money laundering, has deported some of their, their um, editors. Uh, their editors now have to move around and leave El Salvador to maintain their freedom. Um, and then in, in, um, in Guatemala, they, they jailed one of the top um, newspaper editors there who won a Freedom of Press Award from the, Columbia, um, from the Committee to Protect Journalists. And, um, and he was a longtime independent voice speaking truth to power, and they jailed him about six months ago. So across a lot of countries in, in Central America as well, the press is under siege. And so it's just not a pretty picture. As for the United States, again, it's very concerning because with these verbal attacks on the press, the physical attacks on the press have gone up dramatically in the United States. Um, there's something that the Committee to Protect Journalists does called the Freedom Tracker, which is only, only tracking attacks on journalists in the United States. It was established in 2017 for the first time because before 2017, there was no need for a tracker. There were, there were no attacks like there are now. And there are physical attacks, people busting equipment, people denying access, people arresting journalists, um, as well as things like online harassment, judicial harassment. Um, and, and the numbers 
again, are astounding. There, it's, um, I believe, more than 1,600 attacks, and more than half of them, more than 900, are, are physical attacks. Um, there was an investigative reporter murdered in Las Vegas this year, and the suspect in his case was a man he was covering, a politician who was um, the subject of his investigative stories. So it was obviously, um, uh, at least he's accused of, of retaliating, which happens in Mexico all the time, very rarely in the United States. Um, so I've seen the landscape change dramatically for journalists in the United States. I'm, I'm an old journalist. I've been doing this for decades. And I never, when I was working in the United States, had to worry about going somewhere and identifying myself as a reporter and being attacked because it just didn't happen. I mean, people just expected you to be there. They knew what you did. I worked for a newspaper called the San Jose Mercury News. And back in the day when I would show up on stories, people would say, wow, great newspaper. So it was the opposite reaction. And that's what I'm accustomed to because in my recent years, I've been, I've been reporting mostly in Mexico, but journalists today have to be concerned on every story when they go out publicly and say, I'm a journalist, what could possibly happen to them? And they're now even being trained in security measures to work in their own country. And that to me is astonishing because I worked for decades in the United States without any kind of fear. And, and, and I think that's really sad because when you start to um, intimidate and um, try to limit what a journalist can do, you are limiting the freedom of information and you are limiting what you as a society can know and what information you can have to make decisions if journalists are afraid to do their jobs. This is journalist Catherine Corcoran here on A Public Affair, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Catherine about her new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. I'd like to jump to the end of your book, Catherine, where you talk a little bit there at the end about some of the ways you see to com- combat uh, this demonizing public rhetoric and violence against journalists. Um, who needs to push back uh, against this and how? Well, I think, first of all, as a profession, we need to be more transparent about what we do and how we do it and how reported information from a journalist is different from the thousands of bits of communication (laughs) thrown at you every minute now in the information age between the internet and social media and television video. So in the old days when we were the monopoly, that's when I started my career, there was radio, television, and newspapers. Um, That was the only way you got your information. And so there was no need to explain who we were And in fact, journalists were very arrogant about it in those days. Um, Well, you know, we're the press and we're protected by the First Amendment and we're supposed to be here and this is how you get to know what's going on. Well, that's not true anymore. And so I think that, you know, the, the value or even the understanding of what a journalist does is really lost in all this noise and especially in all these attacks that, you know, we're corrupt and we're biased and we make story, we make up stories and we, Um, you know, we're out to destroy the democracy. So if you don't really have an understanding of what somebody does and you hear those kinds of things and there's nothing to counter it, of course you're gonna start believing it. 
or you're going to just look at the bad the bad examples the bad actors and certainly there are plenty in the media and you know we deserve our criticism um but but what gets lost in that criticism is all the good journalism that's being done and all the good information that we produce every day to help people make decisions about their lives and what they want their communities to look like what they want their leaders to look like and um and i think I think that really gets lost. So I think we need to explain better that we do have standards, we do have ethics. We, how do we verify? When do we decide that something is okay to print? I mean, or, or publish or put on the air? I think, I think we should talk a lot more about that. And I think that the citizens can think too, we can encourage them to think about when they say, oh, the mainstream media is bad, the media is bad to stop and think about, well, where do you get your information? And why do you trust that information? And if you stop and think, it's probably from a journalist, but you kind of, you don't really realize it. It's like, people will come up to me because they know I'm a journalist and they'll say, why is the press so biased? And I'll say, well, which press are you referring to? And so I would, I like to engage people in a conversation about that and, and say, um, you know, well, when you say that the media is biased, like, what are you thinking about? And they always say the cable TV shows, Fox and MSNBC. And people think that's journalism. And those, what I call the screaming heads on cable, they, it's not journalism, but that's what people think of when they say the media, or they think of, you know, what, what we often call sort of like pack journalism, the, sort of national teams that cover the White House or that, or cover Congress or, um, and they have some beef with how a political story is being covered. When, in fact, if you look around all across the country, there's really good investigative journalism going on that brings out information that people need to know, like about contaminated drinking water or about um, um, air pollution or even some local company that's robbing the school board or robbing the school money or you know all that kind of thing is what journalists do all the time in a way that we are giving the community information that they need to know we're not the activists we're the ones who give the information so that people can make the decisions or take the actions they want to take and that's how the system is supposed to work when it's working well and that still occurs, we're not all bad. <laughs> and so yep. I, I just feel like on the journalist side and also on the, on the consumer side, that we need to have more thought about what, what we do, how we do it, why, how we can do better always, how we can do better. And, and, I, and my message really in this book is to, is to the citizens and to the society is that you see in this story what happens when the free press is taken away and you see it in the worst possible scenario. And so people need to think about when they attack the press and say, we hate the press and shut down the press. What it, forget about us. What is that going to mean for you as a citizen? Because the people who want to shut down the press want to control you and control what you know. And so the impact is not ultimately on us. It's on the society. And again, the question is, well, what kind of society do you want to have? Finally, Catherine, uh, in terms of that, that question, what kind of society do you want to have? Journalists are out there trying to tell us stories 
about how our society is working or not working, and they're motivated by that love for stories and, and their society. You end your book in the source notes um, talking about your book as a personal valentine to Mexico and independent journalism. After undertaking this sometimes harrowing investigation of the murder of Regina Martinez, what has continued sustaining your love for both Mexico and journalism? Well, I'll talk about journalism first because it's so fundamental to me. I mean, that's why I'm a journalist. And that's why a lot of journalists in Mexico continue to do what they do under these terrible circumstances because they believe what I do, that information is important to a free society, period. And, And yes, we're storytellers. We like to tell stories and we're curious and we like to answer questions. Um, but we feel like free information is fundamental to a free society. And I don't think for me that'll ever go away. That's been, since I discovered journalism in college, I've never done anything else. And, I, and, and it's just what I continue to love every single day. Um, and as far as Mexico, Mexico is a beautiful country. It's a magical place. It's very diverse in terms of terrain, ecosystems, people, culture, food, absolutely fascinating country. And I wanted to make sure that that part of Mexico was in my book. I didn't want to just be some American coming down there and bashing Mexico for violence and corruption. I wanted to write it in the context of this is such a beautiful country and it's so tragic that the citizens have to have to live with this every single day because it's, it's a beautiful place and, and they really deserve better. And, um, and so I, it's just a place where I came and I could never leave. I mean, it just completely captivated me. And I don't think from now on that's ever going to change either. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, both this critical, important story about what's happening to journalism in Mexico and Latin America and journalism more broadly, and also sharing your love for journalism and that craft with us today, Catherine Corcoran. Um, It was really great to talk with you. Douglas, it was so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your interest in the book. I've been talking today with Catherine Corcoran, former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America and author of the new nonfiction book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer, Jade, and news director, Sholly. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, community-supported radio in Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mic.